Today, we begin a new study in the Word of God. We're going to look at Paul's letter to the Colossians. So, you may want to turn there. Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, I just want to make a few introductory remarks, and then we'll just go right into uh, to the letter. This letter of Paul to the Colossians is, above all things, it is about Jesus Christ. Now, of course, there's a sense in which that's true of all Scripture, but it is not equally true of all Scripture. Some Scripture, more directly, more intentionally, more fully and completely, is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and this Scripture is one of those full and direct and complete kinds. Now, this is not only a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's not the only characteristic of it that we recognize at the very beginning. I also want to point out that this letter, like most, in fact, of Paul's letters, is polemic. That is, it is written against someone. It is an argument against someone and their views. That's what it is to be a polemic. Now, many people today don't like the idea of anything that is polemic, of anything that involves an argument with regard to religion. But here, it is this very polemic that gives us the full and clear revelation of Christ in his exaltation particularly. Why is that? It is because the very group of people that Paul is opposing, the very group of people that Paul is arguing against in this letter, had erred and become heretical precisely with regard to some very important doctrines about Jesus Christ. And so, in opposing these, these heretical people, Paul's polemic becomes the glorious revelation of Christ. And I think that there is something in that to wonder at with regard to the providence of God. By God's providence, the existence and spread of a heretical group in Asia Minor some two millennia ago drew forth the opposition in writing of a faithful apostle of Christ. And by the superintendence and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that written opposition was actually Holy Scripture, the very Word of God. And so it becomes not merely a circular letter to combat error in Phrygia, something to be put in a history book, something to be filed away in some dusty university archive. It's not like a letter we would write today, uh, counseling or warning some church against some group of heretics that was troubling them. No, it becomes 
the revelation of Jesus Christ to the church in every age. It becomes the word of God to his saints to instruct them, to edify them, and to equip them unto every good work. It becomes something more precious than all the gold and fine jewels in all the world. It becomes, in fact, the word of eternal life. Now, to briefly summarize this letter, the bulk of chapter 1, after the usual introductions, is taken up with establishing the preeminence of Christ. You may remember when we looked at Philippians chapter 2 and we learned about Christ's exaltation, his being given a name above every name and the authority and position that matched the name that he was given. Well, in Colossians 1, that will be fleshed out and expanded further for us. Then in Colossians 2, uh, that is, Colossians 2 is largely taken up with the spiritual nature of the gospel and true religion, particularly by way of applications against these uh, various errors and practices that certain corruptors of the truth were crying up. Then in Colossians 3, in the beginning of Colossians 4, we have exhortations to duty based on the doctrines of Colossians 1 and 2. Uh, the usual pattern. And then we have at the end of chapter 4 the usual greetings and concluding thoughts. Now today, we're going to talk about the author of our letter, of our letter, of our epistle, trying to combine those two words together. Uh, the, the document begins with these words, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, that's what we want to talk about today. Now, this letter was authored by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. There's absolutely no doubt at all about that fact. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, he says, Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures. So Peter, in a backhanded way, says that the writings of Paul, the letters of Paul, are scripture. And they are written according to the wisdom given unto him. Now, Paul himself tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed, is directly inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. So what we have before us then is not merely the pious advice of some great saint, 
we have the words of God communicated to us through Paul, who was under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which was revealing to him the wisdom of God. Now this fact, this fact that Paul was writing, Paul's letters are scripture and they are inspired by God, is very important to us for two reasons. The first reason that it is important is because this truth has been under an all-out attack for a long time now in the modern era. We are told by those who pretend to have some great knowledge of these things that Paul was a perverter of Christ's simple religion. See, that Christ came and revealed a simple religion of love and toleration for one another, and then Paul rose up and turned it into an institution. We're told that. Uh, we're told that Paul's letters are full of anti-Semitic and sexist and other horrible uh, types of things. Or sometimes we're told that these aren't even written by any Paul. Perhaps there wasn't even a Paul. They're just a fiction attributed to him by someone else who sought a certain degree of fame for their writings. Well, of course, those things are all the vile lies of the devil. And yet, they hold such a great sway over our nation today that it seems uncommon to find a man who will dare to pick up the word of God, point to the writings of Paul the Apostle and say that this is the word of God unreservedly and wholeheartedly. So it is important that we recognize that the Bible teaches that Paul's writings are inspired scripture, the word of God given by direct revelation. Oh, I said there were two reasons that it was important to remember this fact. The second is because of the corruption of our own hearts. A corruption universal in its effects on the human race. The Bible says that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit. And so, of course, the natural man thinks that the idea of God inspiring Paul to give forth his word is just a foolish fable, just a silly old wives' tale. But insofar as each one of us has within us an unsanctified remnant of sin, the power of the flesh, we also have within us a power that contains the principle of atheism. And it is not a powerless principle. It seeks to regain dominion in two ways. First of all, there is the constant suggestion that what we hold is not the word of God, but a myth, the writings of mere men. And if we are not utterly and completely persuaded of the truth that these are the inspired words of God, this atheism will challenge us and haunt us without mercy or relief and will bring up every sort of argument, subtle and not so subtle, to try and derail our faith 
from believing in the word of God. But in those over whom it cannot prevail by direct assault, it, it assumes a more subtle, a more insidious, a more dangerous approach. And this atheistic principle seeks to promote a practical atheism. Oh, it will not deny the word to be inspired, but rather it will say that we should ignore it. It will attempt to bring about that we should neglect it, that we will lack time for it or interest in it. But how foolish, how ruinous to the soul. Think of a few examples that show of how foolish such a thing is. If a man came forth today and could promise that he had found a certain potion which if men drank it they would never age and never die. Why, the whole world would overrun him in seeking to get some of it for themselves, wouldn't they? But we have in front of us the word of eternal life, and yet it sits neglected and ignored. If a man promised that a certain mine was filled with fabulous wealth and riches, and that all one had to do was dig to get them, why the whole world would overrun the place with their shovels and picks seeking to get to the gold and gems and silver that were promised to be there. But we have in front of us something more valuable than all the silver and gold and precious minerals that could be found in all the world. Yet men can hardly be persuaded to search its contents to find the truth. If the word of a great king regarding our life and death was sent to us, rapt attention would be paid and honor given to the messenger. But we have in front of us a word that regards the life and death of our eternal souls, and yet too often it is treated as something negligible, so much waste paper. We must guard against the workings of this practical atheism, as well as intellectual atheism, and the powerful antidote to both is a full persuasion of the inspiration of the word and a recognizing of the significance and the duty that follows from such knowledge. If this is the word of Almighty God regarding souls, we had better listen. The second point that I would like to make this morning is just to briefly mention something of the circumstances in which this letter was produced. Uh, like the letter to the Philippians, this was a prison epistle written while Paul was being held in Rome in a Roman jail 
awaiting trial before the emperor on the charges brought against him by the Jews, which were not so different from the charges the Jews brought against Stephen. Paul speaks of his sufferings in verse, chapter 1, verse 24 of this letter, and of the fact that he was currently in bonds, in shackles, if you will, uh, chapter 4, verses 3 and 18. And at one point in this letter, he refers to one who is a fellow prisoner, chapter 4, verse 10. So Paul was in prison. Uh, this letter was written at the same time as the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to Philemon, uh, in whose house, in fact, the church of the Colossians seems to have met. And both the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians were carried to their destinations by a minister named Tychicus, who we will uh, learn about later. And Onesimus, the runaway slave of Philemon, accompanied Tychicus from Rome with the letter to the Colossians and the, uh, and the Ephesians, and also carried his own letter to Phi Paul's letter to Philemon, uh, beseeching him to receive Onesimus back into his house. The time was somewhere around 61 to 63 AD, the commentators seemed to, to uh, be agreed upon. Now the third uh, thing that we want to consider this morning is Paul's identification of himself. He says that he is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Now he draws here, draws attention here to two things. He draws attention to his office, and he draws attention to the way in which he came to that office. Now both of these things are important, and both of them draw attention primarily to one thing, and that is authority. And that is usually what Paul is after when he talks about his office and his calling to that office. In First and Second Corinthians and in Galatians, he, he introduces himself by, by stressing his office and his calling to his office. And there he is writing to churches in which his authority and his doctrines were being personally challenged in the Galatian church and the Corinthian church, both. He also introduces himself this way in First and Second Timothy and in Titus. Well, who was he writing to there? He was writing to men who were under his authority in their office in the church, who answered directly to him as evangelists. Men directly responsible to him, and so he stresses, again, authority. And then, in the letter to the Romans, and in this letter, he stresses uh, this office and his calling to this office for a different reason. It is because... He had never seen these people in person. Paul had never been. He, or he may have been to Colossae, we're not certain. Uh, there's a, it doesn't say expressly, though it's likely that he went by that route uh, in one of his missionary trips. But he does say in this letter that they had never seen his face. So Paul was not responsible for the founding of the Colossian church. These were people, he had no connection with these people prior to the writing of this letter. 
just as the letter of the Rome to the Romans. He'd never been to to Rome at that point when he was writing to them. Uh, so these were people who had never seen him in person. They were not converted by his ministry. And so he had to establish with them his apostolic relationship and his Christ-given authority. Now, to be an apostle was to instantly command authority in the church. The apostles were the first officers given to the church by Jesus Christ as a gift unto the edification of the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. He says, And God has set some in the church, first apostles, first apostles. In fact, not only were they the first, are they described as the first gift of Christ to the church by way of office, by way of officers, they are described as the foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, speaking of the household of God, which is the church, says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So they are the very foundation of the church. Now, the word apostle means simply a messenger. And this very accurately describes the fundamental work of the apostolic office. The, of, the apostles were preeminently Christ's chosen messengers to the world, his ambassadors, the witnesses of his resurrection to the world. Along with this, they were to bear the message of his gospel and to teach all things whatsoever he had commanded to those who believed his gospel. So they had, they, they, they were ambassadors of Christ, messengers of Christ. Accompanying this commission, Christ gave to the apostles supernatural gifts. Paul refers at one point to the signs of an apostle, uh, which included tongues and the working of miracles, and, uh, and direct divine inspiration. And the apostles also had the power to confer the ability to work miracles by the laying on of hands. So they had, they had uh, a commission from Christ to be the messengers of the gospel. They had supernatural gifts that accompanied that commission. And then there is a third important aspect of their office that is very unique from any other of the other offices in the church, and that is that they had a universal commission and, un and a, a, a preeminent authority. The apostles were not officers of the local church or of any given local church. They were the foundation of the church. They were not elected and ordained by the people of God. They were chosen directly by Christ. They were officers of the entire church. They were officers to all churches, and they were over them in their government. They answered directly to Christ in the execution of their duties. Now, it was absolutely vital 
that Paul establish his office to the Colossian congregation. Why? He was about to undertake, as we will see, he was about to undertake to instruct them, to teach them in true doctrine. Not only that, he was going to teach them doctrine that was contrary to teachings that were evidently prevalent among them, teachings that were contrary to what they were hearing from certain deceivers who they were to reject. So, if his teachings were to be received, it was vital that he establish his, the authority of his office to them. But he also mentions not only that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says something about his calling to this office. He says that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. By the will of God or through the will of God. Paul did not receive the apostleship by his own aspirations, did he? He didn't decide, oh, I think I want to be an apostle and seek after it. No, that wasn't the case. In fact, he was destroying and laying waste to the church at the very time that he was called to the apostleship. He was not self-appointed. Paul did not simply proclaim, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ because I say that I'm one, I want to be one. He didn't do that, did he? Nor was he even set in this office by the mediation of men. He wasn't chosen by men. He wasn't elected. No, he was directly called and appointed to this office by God. And that is clearly a demonstration of the Lord's will. In fact, Paul had a direct precept from Christ, a direct commandment from Christ that required him to execute this office so that he could even say that he did not preach the gospel willingly, but as one under compulsion against his will as it were. 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17. Now, of course, we you are all familiar, I trust, with the narrative of Paul's dramatic conversion and call to the apostolic office. You will find that uh, set out for you in Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24, and Acts 9, 1 through 22. But uh, you will remember, uh, just to briefly highlight, that he was... Uh, in the very process of uh, engaging in uh, traveling somewhere to engage in further persecution of the church, and uh, uh, so that he could uh, bring disciples to Jerusalem to uh, have them punished, uh, disciples of Christ, and uh, Christ appeared to him and struck him blind and uh, uh, sent him to a, a place in Damascus, uh, where he had already, the Lord had already appeared to Ananias, and he's told Ananias, he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul is called uh, directly by Christ to the apostolic office, miraculously converted and commissioned all in uh, one 
Roundup. Now, what we want to note is the fact that he especially draws from this experience. What does this all signify to Paul that this has happened? What can he say about it? He says that he is an apostle of Christ by the will of God. By holding forth this fact, he was saying to the Colossians, Though you've never seen my face, you must understand that I speak to you as one sent directly from God, with doctrine received directly from his Holy Spirit, with an authority over you, communicated from him for your edification and salvation, which if you reject, it is one and the same as rejecting Christ himself. You see, if you reject the apostles of Christ, you reject Jesus Christ. Because the one who receives, the one sent by Christ, receives Christ. The Lord said that himself, speaking of those he had especially commissioned to bear testimony of his name. And in fact, Paul's writing of this letter was part of the fulfillment of the duties of his apostolic office as a protector and an under-shepherd of the whole flock of Christ. Now this raises for us two points of application. We learn, first of all, something of the nature and importance of authority. There is a general principle that we can draw from this and from the Word. When God places or establishes authority in any person or in any institution to which we are answerable, we are required to give honor and respect to that person or institution and to receive and obey all their commands that are both lawful and consonant to the extent of their authority. Let me say that again and then explain it. When God places or establishes authority in any person or institution to which we are answerable, we are required to give honor and respect to that person or institution and receive and obey all their commands that are both lawful and agreeable to the extent of their authority. Now, God places authority. Let's talk about that, first of all. God places authority in things, doesn't he? In many persons and institutions. Uh, for example, there is authority placed by God in the many levels and kinds of civil magistracy over their citizens. Uh, there is an authority placed in husbands over their wives. There is an authority placed in parents over their children. There is an authority placed in church officers over the church. And there is an authority placed in the gathered church over the single member. In each of these persons, in each of these institutions, we must recognize God-ordained authority. And we must reverence and honor and respect them for that authority. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, we must receive and obey their commands that are both lawful, which means that they are agreeable to the word of God. It means they're not commanding us something contrary to the word. They're not telling us to sin. And within the scope 
of their ordained authority. Now this last point is very important and it is largely unknown and neglected today uh, because people are ignorant of the truth. A command might be lawful to obey in itself, but it might be outside of the scope of the authority of the one giving the command and so making it non-binding and in many cases unlawful. Let me give you an example. Uh, a parent tells his child, today you are not to eat the sausage that is in the refrigerator. All right? Now, we would all agree that that was a perfectly lawful commandment for a parent to give to a child, and that the child would be sinning to disobey it, right? But what if the Pope of Rome told us, today you must not eat the sausage that is in the refrigerator? Why? That ought to be rebuked and opposed, and in, in fact, I suspect we probably ought to get the sausage out and eat it. Why? Because the Pope of Rome, or any religious person, even legitimate religious authority, even the godly elders of your church, don't have the authority to be telling you when you can eat the sausage that's in your refrigerator, because it's not within the scope of their, of their authority. And in fact, when they overstep those boundaries, they sin grievously, and Christ rebukes them viciously for it, as he did with the Pharisees. Or, for example, uh, the, the officers of the church, and in, in conjunction with the church, may establish that 10 a.m. is to be the time in which the church is to gather for worship, determining a lawful circumstance. Now, everyone would agree that that would be, ought to be kept and followed, and that people who who uh, rebelliously insisted on showing up at 10.30 and disrupting the service or 11 or something like that were to be rebuked for their rebellion and disobedience. But what if the civil magistrate came along and said that every church was to meet at 10 a.m.? Well, that would be intruding into an area in which they have no authority and in fact ought to be rebuked and ignored. So you see the idea. The commandment has not only to be lawful, but it has to be within the scope of the one's authority who's giving the command. Now, Paul was exercising his apostolic authority in teaching the true doctrine of Christ, and they were bound to listen to him. And do you know that we are bound to listen to him today? Because just as the Colossians, we know Paul only by his letters, don't we? But his apostleship extends to us as well as to the Colossians. Are we part of the church of Jesus Christ? Then we too are built on the foundation of the apostles. They are the first gifts to our church by Jesus Christ. And we must hear their word as the very word of God and respect and revere their authority and obey it in all of its lawful exercise. Now, secondly, let me make one point about the will of God. The fact that Paul knew that his office was of God's will not only established his authority, but it was also a ground for enormous confidence. And this is true in general. When we are engaged in doing God's will, we too may have confidence and certainty we too may be without doubting and without fear. How often 
Christians are so cowardly in obeying God rather than bold and fearless. How often we are, in fact, almost ashamed of rendering obedience to the Lord simply because such obedience is mocked or reviled by the, by the wicked worldlings that surround us. But that itself is the shameful thing. God's word is God's will. God's precept is our duty. And we may be absolutely confident and fearless when we know that we are obeying Him. We need fear nothing from the world because we have God's approval and God's promises readily at our hands as our shield and our buckler, our sword and our armor. So let us labor to know God's will by knowing His word, by knowing His precepts. Let us labor to do God's will by obeying that word, by obeying those precepts. And let us do so confidently and fearly and with a full persuasion of faith to the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we will know something of Paul's spiritual power, the true power of faith and obedience. Now there is appended to this uh, finally, uh, another uh, name, Timothy, our brother. This, of course, is the Timothy, the, uh, the apostolic helper, the evangelist who, uh, who worked under Paul in the ministry. And uh, he is given here at the head of the letter as well and called our brother. He's called that in a couple of other places, too, in these types of introductions. Uh, not to take any stress away from him or his office, but rather perhaps to endear him to uh, the church to which Paul was writing. And very often we find that uh, Paul is writing to a church and he's going to send uh, many of these same people to be with and to instruct that church for a time. And so he goes to great lengths in some cases to establish their respectability and their reception in that church. And so it is Timothy, our brother. How is Timothy also an author of the epistle? Well, not properly speaking, but what we find, what we will find, is that uh, in the first section of the letter, uh, Paul writes in the plural, we give thanks to God, since we heard of your faith, uh, who declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And that we there, I think, is a reference to Paul and Timothy. Now later, he turns to the singular and uh, begins to speak properly in the first person by and of himself. So, uh, Timothy is to be considered as, as equally included in and, uh, and equally involved in and approving of the introductory portion of the letter which describes there in verses 3 throughout the middle of chapter 1, which describes uh, the relationship of uh, their relationship to the Colossian church, how they pray for them and give thanks for them and what they think of them. So we have then verse 1, Paul 
an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Next week, then, we will consider, uh, verse 2 and perhaps more, if we can, we will consider the recipients of the letter and how they are described here, the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, and we will consider the blessing uh, given by Paul and Timothy to that church. Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank mm-hmm. you.